So did you know that there's a reason that the Bible was written? That there's a reason that every section of the Bible was written? And that there's a purpose and a meaning for all of it? This is probably not earth-shattering news to any of you. But what might be earth-shattering is the realization that you, that I, I don't get to determine You don't get to determine what that message is or that meaning. So what was the reason that the Bible was written? What's the meaning of it, the purpose of it? Especially when we read chapters like this. Well, grasping this understanding, what this is, and knowing that there is an intended meaning and purpose behind the Bible will go a long way in being able to rightly understand the Bible. And God began the Bible giving us the intended purpose of the Bible. And that purpose is singular, to know him and understand that it is only him, all because of him, that anything is. And all that is, All that was created is created for him and for a purpose. And that purpose is told to us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And that verse is nothing more than a clarifier of Genesis 1.1, which tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that verse is the key to understanding all the rest of the Bible. And there are patterns and flows within the Bible. And learning those patterns, that flow, learning to recognize the guides that are given to us will be really helpful in understanding the word of God. Because God doesn't want you... God does not just want you just to read the Bible. He desires us to rightly read the Bible. This is what Paul admonished Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15 when he told him, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And Jesus asked the disciples a question really similar question to this, after telling them of the pearl of great price, telling them of the parable of the sower and the seeds, he asked them in Matthew um, uh, chapter 13, verses 51 and 52, he said, he asked them, do you understand all these things? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new And what is old? Saints, this is why the Bible has been given to you. Not for your reading pleasure, not to entertain you, not to captivate your imagination or cause you to wonder or even to think about, is, is this actually plausible, these accounts that are being given to us? We need to understand is that if you are a saint, then this Bible has been written to you, for you, with an intended purpose. 
Christ redeemed you to be a disciple, not a voyeur, not a spectator, and certainly not a consumer. You have been redeemed by God, not for you, but for him, for his glory. And you are to be a disciple, which means that like Timothy, you are to be trained to rightly handle the word of truth, all of it, the new, I mean the old and the new. And this doesn't mean, though, that you're going to be able to answer every question within it. But you should be able to direct yourself and all others to the one who can. Simply because he is the truth, the life. And he has redeemed you, given you his spirit and given you his word. Don't get confused here and think that what I'm saying is that the Bible is easy, that God is easy, that he wrote the Bible for dummies. But he does intend you to search the scripture, to seek to understand, to labor at reading and comprehending the meaning found within them. The gospel, the message of the Bible is so simple that a child can grasp it and come to Christ. And at the same time, God is so complex in his simplicity that the greatest of minds being fully regenerated and expending all their God-given abilities and time in the pursuit of him would at the end of their lives have only begun to climb the mere foothills of the Mount Everest that he is. But you are intended to be a disciple, not a convert, not just a believer. This is the command by Christ to all of the redeemed, all of the redeemed. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go and make converts? No. Go into the streets and witness? No. Go and tell people that they can get a free ticket out of hell and that there's nothing that God expects of them. No. Never go at all. Most certainly not. Go and make disciples. A disciple is one who sits at his master's feet. He walked with him, serves him. Was, a disciple was expected to live as a slave would with his master. And a disciple learned what his master taught, learned how his master lived, and he learned to emulate him in all ways. And this was the expectation by Jesus of his disciples. And this was the command given to them to give to their disciples to then give to us. But this is not what we have been taught. This is not what has been demonstrated to us by and large. But no matter, this is still the clear command and expectation of Christ for his people. 
And now that you know what is expected, it's up to you to learn to rightly handle the word of truth. You must learn from your master. And even though this chapter is one of those chapters that can cause your mind to check out on, there is intent in this chapter. And even though this is one of those chapters that's filled with all those hard names and a lot of he begats within it, I'm confident that if you'll just sit up and as we read along, as we go through this chapter, you will see exactly how God reveals what he wants us to see, what he wants us to know about him and even about us in this chapter. As you're going through this chapter, look for repeated words or phrases, contrasting words or phrases. Look for phrases that were used in previous chapters or even chapters that led right up to this one. And look for odd things as well because none of these things are there by accident. And chapter 5 is special. And there are lots of intended meanings within this chapter, all pointing to the intended meaning. Chapter 1 and 2 began with God. Chapter 3 began with the serpent. Chapter 4 began with Adam, which completed all the characters that God created in the drama of the ages. Chapter 4 was intended to be read with chapter 3 fresh in your mind. If you read chapter 4, the killing of Abel and the lineage of Cain outside of the sin of Adam and the curse of God, you won't gain the intended perspective and meaning given there. And just as chapter 4 was intended to be read with chapter 3 fresh in your mind, chapter 5 is meant to be read over chapter 4. Over chapter 4? Yes, over chapter 4. In chapter 4, Cain murdered Abel. And then the rest of chapter 4 chronicles the downward, downward spiral and the cesspool that is humanity. And at the same time, chronicling the social, artistic, and material advancements that humans created as, the, as it lists the genealogy of that man Cain. But chapter 5, just like chapter 4 begins with Adam, and it, at the beginning of this chapter, we learn something new about this man, Adam. Adam was keeping a book. Verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. The book that he was keeping couldn't have been like the books that we know now. It was more than likely an oral tradition that was handed down from one generation to the next. But why was he keeping a book? And who was this book for? And what was the meaning behind the book? Adam had hope. He believed and trusted God in that curse, that pronouncement that, of that curse on that serpent, that a redeemer would come and crush the head of the serpent, returning him to the sweet fellowship that he once enjoyed with God. And the first three chapters, I'm sorry, the first three verses of this chapter are written with the intent to tie this chapter back in with chapter 1 and 2 and the end of that creation week when God created man. 
We aren't intended to read this chapter, chapter 5, separate from the out and outside of the events of chapters 1 and 2. So let's look at verses 1 through 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. There's a repetition given to us in the first two verses. We are told four times that God created man. He created man. He made him in his likeness. That he created two sexes, just two, and he blessed them when he created them. The repetition here, it not only ties this chapter in with the first two chapters, but it also, what it does is it gives us, it tells us who the primary actor is in the life of man. And it ain't man. And we're supposed to understand that from these verses that Adam was not created just for himself. That's why verse 1 starts by telling us that the, this is a book of the genealogy of Adam. But then it goes on to hammer home the point that God made man, not just Adam. And then ends by telling us that God blessed them and named them man, who he created. God created man in his image. He made him in the likeness of God. This is what God did when he created that perfect being called man. And there's something that we're, that we're meant to understand in this creation account that's being highlighted here. God didn't name that man, Adam, until after the fall. Wait, wait a minute. Didn't chapter 2 give us the name of Adam? I mean, if you look in an ESV and you look at verse 20 of chapter 2, it gives, it actually gives that name Adam. But this is where understanding Hebrew comes in handy. And as anybody who studied Hebrew will tell you, it ain't easy to understand. The Hebrew word for man is ha-adam, which means ruddy, red, or dirt. And this is a word that is used to describe the created being called man in every instance until we come to Genesis 3.17. Anybody want a gander, take a gander of a guess what happened right before Genesis chapter 3, verse 17? The sin of man. And then God directly calls for the first time in history. For the first time in history, God directly calls man Adam, after his sin. And the second time in the book of Genesis that that name, Adam, is used in the Bible is here, Genesis 5.1, and then again in Genesis 5.3. There's theology happening in these verses. Important distinctions that are being made here. Verse 1 and 2 God created man in his image. In verse 3, Adam fathered a son in his image, in his likeness. What God is telling to us, revealing to us, is that Adam, he is our federal head. In Romans 5, we're told 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 12. This may not seem like a big deal to you, but it really is. Because there are many people who actually think that man at its core, at our core, that we really are good. I mean, we have to be good because we are created in the image of God. And God is bigger than sin, right? And for this reason, they surmise that man at our core, at our core, we're generally just good. Just give them a chance, they'll be good. And they'll argue that just because Adam sinned, that doesn't mean that I'm a sinner. I am responsible for myself. Adam, he was responsible for himself. I am not a sinner. But isn't it odd, though, that we have to convince people that they aren't good? Even though they do not good things all the time? And isn't it odd, though, that even after regeneration, that humans can have a bad understanding of the nature of sin and how it relates to man? Because we humans are still, to this day, created in the image of God. And the human race is special because of this. But at the same time, and in a different way, we are the sons of Adam. And this is the reality of verses 1 through 3 of our text from today. And because of this, all of us have been born of the seed of the serpent. We are all sinners. We have been fathered in his own image after his likeness. And this is why we are told in verse 2 that after creating man and woman, that God blessed them and then he, he names the name Adam in verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 17. What he's telling us is that he created man in his image, and then Adam created us in his image after the fall. God made Adam fathered. God created perfection. Adam made sinners. And this is the truth that we must hang on to as we read the Bible. Because we are never meant or intended to read the Bible and finally get to a man like Joshua or Joseph and David and think to ourselves, finally, someone who is a good man. They're not. They were all sinners. Every single one of them needed a redeemer. We're going to circle back to the importance of, these, of this verse, verse 3, in a second. But before we do that, let's finish the rest of the book of, of Adam, the genealogy that has flowed all the way down to you and to me. So Seth is born when Adam is 130 years old. And with one exception, every person in this genealogy lives extremely long, much longer than we are accustomed to in our day and age. Just to give you an idea of what living 930 years would be like in our day and age. Someone who was born in the year 1200, think about that, the year 1200, they would still be alive today. They would have lived through the Crusades. They would have seen the Black Plague. They would have been there for the Reformation. 
the creation of most of the countries that we know in this world, including the United States. And they could have spoken with people who had been alive when Christ walked this planet. Think about this. Because it applies to our verses from today. If this were the reality still, you could talk to people who actually knew firsthand people who had seen and and talked to, maybe even been a disciple of Jesus. How would that change our culture? How would that change our Christianity? I mean, it would be really hard to deny that Christ lived and did the things that are recorded of him in the Bible when you have living people standing there looking at you, affirming that what had been written was attested to by their dad. And there's one other thing that we should note from verse 4. There's something new in verse 4. Adam died physically. We know that he's not the first person to die in the Bible. We know of at least one other, Abel. And I'm sure that there were others. But there's a pattern that's being formed here. A man is named. We're told how old he was. When he fathered another specific man. And then we're told how long he lived. And then we are told that he died. And this is the pattern for this genealogy that chronicles the first 1,600 years in the redemption plan of God. And as we read in chapter 4, it was during the days of Seth that man started calling on the name of the Lord, Genesis 4, 26. And then in verse 21, the pattern is no longer followed. The pattern's not broken. It continues after Enoch but it's altered in the life of Enoch. And as a side note, as as we're going through these genealogies, whenever a genealogy is given, these are not all the kids that they had. There were other children. This genealogy is not inclusive of all the children born to these men. It's just being specific in naming each of them. There is a lineage being spoken of here, a line that is being drawn beginning with the first Adam. And the one thing that we're supposed to realize from this lineage, from the genealogy that Adam, I'm sorry, that is given here, is that when Enoch was born, Adam was only 600 years old. In fact, every man in this genealogy except Noah knew Adam. Every every single one of them. They could have all gone and sat on his lap to hear firsthand of him walking in the cool of the day with God, of what the Garden of Eden was like, of that first time that he saw that woman, their grandmother, Eve, or great-grandmother. And he could have answered the question of all the ages. Did Adam have a belly button or not? But there's one other thing that we need to understand is that Adam knew Enoch. And in verse 21 through 23, we read of that man named Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch was different. 
Again, this genealogy is specific, but it's not inclusive. And we're given these men's names and even their ages for a reason. But in verses 21 through 23, we are given specific information about this man, Enoch, that we're not given of other people. We're told that Enoch walked with God. Adam used to walk with God in the cool of the garden, and that all changed for him and all men when he sinned. But this man, Enoch, he was different. His relationship with God was different. It was special. He must have been really serious in his personal devotion time. I mean, he must have really strived hard towards holiness and godliness. Much more than the rest of all these men in this genealogy, including Adam. We read in chapter 4 that it was during the time of Seth that men began to call on the name of the Lord. And we know that through the account of Cain and Abel that men were bringing offerings to God even before Seth. So it would be right to assume then that man had a relationship with God before Seth. And then during the time of Seth we're told about corporate worship coming about. But this relationship that Enoch had, it was different. So what was so special about Enoch? And isn't the fact that he walked with the Lord and that the Lord took him enough reason for us to go search the internet and find those books that are supposed to have been written by him? If you don't know it, there are actually books out there called the Book of Enoch. In fact, there's more than one of them. And shouldn't we go out there and find them? I mean, since Enoch walked with the Lord and God took him, I mean, shouldn't this be enough reason for anyone who is serious with the Lord to go find those books just to get tips on how to walk with the Lord? I mean, that book, these books, they could be the next prayer of Jabez. We may have been missing, missing out on those magic words, the magic formula that's written in there. Maybe those books of Enoch, maybe they contain the plan of God for never dying. And maybe there was nothing special about Enoch. And Enoch walked with God. You see, we have been so conditioned toward a man-centered theology, so indoctrinated into a humanistic God that when we come to this genealogy, we are looking at the men in it. And specifically think that the point of verses 21 through 23 are about that man, Enoch. We think these verses are about Enoch. We think that he has the key to eternal life, that his life is supposed to be emulated. We should strive to be like Enoch. Everybody has the opportunity. Everybody has the moral fortitude, the free will, ability to choose to be like Enoch or not. We think that we, each one of us have this ability, the same choice, the aptitude to be like Enoch or Noah. Because Enoch isn't the only man who we're told in Genesis that walked with God. Genesis 6, 8 through 9, Noah, however, found favor in the sight of Yahweh. And these are the family records of Noah, Noah was righteous man, blameless along with his or among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And you're thinking, well, doesn't that prove, though, that you can decide to walk with God or not? 
that you can decide what sort of relationship you're going to have with him, that you actually get to choose this, because it sure seems like this. I mean, I, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Can I remind you that every single person in this genealogy so far knew Adam? They were firsthand witnesses to the carnage of the sin of Adam. And these men worshiped God. They brought offerings to him. Adam could have told these men how sweet the garden was, how good it used to be, and how intimate the relationship with, with God was. And if the choosing really is up to us, why didn't Adam choose to walk with God? Or Seth? Or any of the others? I mean, are you really going to tell me that Adam thought that life after the banishment from the garden, all the contention with Eve, the struggle to survive, that all of that or any of it was better than what he knew in the garden before he sinned? Why would Adam have not chosen to walk with God like Enoch did? Was Enoch really that special? I mean, was he just one of those zealots where all the rest of these men are just merely churchgoers? Is this the meaning behind the walking with God that we're told that Enoch did, told that Noah did? Well, perhaps a biblical perspective on what walking with God looks like would help. Listen to Moses in Deuteronomy 8.6. And I know Moses is probably not the best person to listen to because we're never told that Moses walked with God. Deuteronomy 8.6. Observe the commands of Yahweh, your God, by walking in his ways and revering him. Moses may never have walked with God, or at least we weren't told that he is, that he did. But he talked to him face to face. He ate with him. And he, Moses, equated obedience to the law with walking with the Lord. And later, God would send his prophet Micah to the chosen people of Israel. And he, Micah, would tell them this in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, old man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And still later, God would send his apostles to tell us, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. And in 1 John 1, 6 and 7, we're told, if we say that we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what was so special about Enoch? Well, in the book of Hebrews, the writer there speaks of Enoch as if he actually knew him. In chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, he tells us what the meaning of walking with God that is being highlighted here in this sec section of Scripture means. Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews once again, chapter 11. Understanding Hebrews 11 and the key um, and what the author of Hebrews 11 is talking about 
in mentioning Enoch here is found in verse 1. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 1 is the definition of of what faith is. Faith is knowing what you can't know. It's being absolutely sure about something that other people think can't be true or known. Belief in Santa Claus, in aliens, or Bigfoot is this. And this is why faith in and of itself does no good in salvation. Because faith is sincerely believing in something. But just because you sincerely believe in something, that sincerity doesn't make that thing that you believe in true. Let's continue reading in Hebrews 11 and see this faith that that is the key to the meaning behind Enoch walking with God. Let's see how this faith is spoken of in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What the author there is telling us is if you believe the biblical account of creation, that's faith. He's laying a groundwork. That's how you know that what is being told to us in the Bible is truth. And then the author of Hebrews, after telling us how we believe the creation account, starts speaking of those, of how those, after the sin of Adam, how they were approved unto God. Verses 4 and 5. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by, um, by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. The author of Hebrews said of Enoch that he was commended as having pleased God. What was it that the author of Hebrews says that he was commended for? Faith. The same thing that Abel was commended for, faith. And then in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, we're told of the absolute truth. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to him, to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You must have faith. So knowing this, why don't you just go out to the local faith store and purchase some? In, in fact, since we know that without faith you can't please God, you should go out and buy as much faith as you can afford. <laughs> That's silly. You, there are no faith stores. We all know that to have faith, you've got to build it up within yourself. You have to believe or not. You choose that. Everybody knows that. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that everyone should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But wait, you contend. Those Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, there's controversy concerning what that means. People say that 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 thing there, that gift, he didn't mean faith. 
No one actually, not everybody believes that. that that's what that says. Okay. So how about 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 then? Simon Peter, a bondservant of the Apostle Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ourselves by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, what about Philippians 1.29? For to you it is being granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. How about Acts 3.16? And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man who you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him, this man, the perfect health that you, in the presence of you all. No. Faith is the gift of God that you must have to please him. And you can't purchase it. You can't steal it. You can't borrow it. And you can't learn how to gain it. It has to be given to you. And the author of Hebrews, in giving us the definition of faith in verse 1, then gives us the example of faith in verses 2 through 5. And then he tells us of the absolute requirement for faith to be of God. And then goes back to chronicling what faith practically looks like in the lives of those whom it has been given. Picking up with Noah in verse 7 and ending at what to those saints when he wrote this in this present day was present times. And at the end of chapter 11, he says this. And all these, talking about all those that had died, from Adam all the way forward, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Saints, this account about Enoch, it's not about him. After being taken up, that pattern that was established beforehand, at the beginning of the chapter, it picks right back up. A man na uh, is named, an age given, another man is born, and then he dies. Until we come to this last verse, verse 32. After Noah lived, was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the why of the life of Enoch is given us to cause us to wonder. Not at Enoch or what was so special about him, but to wonder at the God of Enoch, who is the same God of Noah, who is the same God of Adam. The genealogy of Adam, that book that he kept, was to chronicle the goodness of the God that gave each one of these men hope, belief in the unbelievable, faith in the hope, in the midst of hopelessness. We think that we live in a sinful age. The age that we live in now is nothing compared to what they lived in. This chapter began with the reality of the trespass and the reality of the death of man. And we are not required to have faith to believe in death. Adam, Enoch, they both believed in death. But they still had hope. But to each of them, a gift had been given. And the free gift is not like the trespass. 
For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 15 through 17. Grace, the free gift of righteousness to these people, to any that these gifts are given, these people are very special. And we're thinking to ourselves when we read that, these must be the zealots that we run across. They, they must be the elites of God, the Spurgeons, the Whitfields, you, you know, the Sprouls. There are these, they are these demigods that we go to see these conferences at, and we sit there and we just marvel at these men. They are unlike us. Those men will have their names written alongside of Enoch in the Hall of Faith for us to look and wonder at, admire. No, dear saints, this is not true. Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And you're thinking to yourself, but doesn't this prove that God gives different levels of grace to people? I mean, just like he gives different gifts to people. Some being called elders, other people being given different gifts. Isn't that the same thing? No, dear saint. The grace of God is not the same as the giftings of God. Listen to the verses that explain and follow verse 7 of Ephesians 4. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, that he doesn't mean, but he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, and that might fill all things. That's verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians 4. And what Paul was doing there was quoting Psalm 68 in this, as, as, as his explanation of verse 7 of Ephesians 4 which seems like a really odd thing to do. Since the ascending and descending, it kind of muddies the water, making the meaning less clear and not more clear. That is until you read Psalm 68, verses 18 through 20, which tell us, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord belongs deliverances from death. And you're thinking, wait a second, that doesn't make it any better or any clearer. I mean, in fact, it makes it worse. What are you trying to get at, David? I mean, did you notice, though, in verse 18, in Ephesians, that, God be, that it begins with God ascending and not descending. He's going up. And here, he's leading a host of people who were once captive in his train. And then something really strange is said. 
that in the midst of the ascending, in the midst of leading these captives, that he is receiving gifts from among men. Not that he's getting gifts, like Paul said in Ephesians 4.8. So which is it? Was Paul wrong? Was he wrong in his understanding of the Bible? Or is this one of those many contradictions that are in the Bible? No. What Paul was getting at when he said that, what he wants you and me to understand, dear one, is that the grace of God is the gift of God. And the free gift is not like the trespass, as we are told in Romans 5. And the why of this is the answer to the conundrum of the Ephesians 4 versus those of Psalm 68. And that answer is found in Christ, as told us at the beginning verses that follow the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. In chapter 12 of Hebrews 1 and 2, we're told, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, these men in the hall of faith, these men in Genesis 5, were surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Saints, what we are supposed to understand by all of this is that you, 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 my beloved, are the gift that God receives. That you are the joy that is set before Christ. And it's God who has given you the faith to believe the unbelievable. And saints, you may be sitting here. You may be sitting here and you may be like that father who came to Christ with that demon-possessed young son who cried to Christ, I believe, but help my unbelief. Mark 9.20 If you have any faith at all, and if faith matters to you, listen to me, dear ones. If faith matters to you, even in the midst of doubt, then you are the joy that was set before Jesus, that he endured the cross for. You may not feel this way, but I'm telling you, Standing here looking out, I'm telling you, there's people that could care no less about this. Does it matter to you? That's faith. God has given you that faith. You may not feel this way. And you may even think that it is not fair, that it seems like others don't go through a crisis of faith. But ask yourself this, do you not think that the men that lived with Enoch must have felt the same way? 
that Noah must have wondered at this as well? Or did these men, did they just glory in the God that took Enoch? Hoping against hope in the Redeemer that they were still looking for. We are told that this is the case. And this is why the concluding verses of, a he, of what Hebrews 11 tells us. Saints, our faith, the life of Enoch, is all rooted in, grounded in, and found in the reality of the God that we are told of, that began the beginning, that will end the end, and that holds all things in the palm of his hand. Those very hands that nothing anywhere can snatch you out of. Let's pray.